0: back to murder under the midnight sun i've got a grab bag of mysteries for you guys tonight for this new year's eve edition happy new year's to y'all uh if you're you know further ahead in time than me or if you're just listening to this you know sometime in 2019 as i'm recording it it's still new year's eve as usual this episode is brought to you by my lovely patrons Welcome to my newest patron, Erin. You'll be getting some snail mail from me pretty soon. And if you would like to become a patron, visit patreon.com slash Midnight Sun Murder. There are several different tiers to choose from, and there are around five or six bonus episodes right now, and there will be definitely some more in the pretty near future, as well as other perks. If you would like to make a one-time donation, you could click the link in the show notes, and every dollar counts. I've got a couple of mysteries for you guys tonight. And first up, we have a fascinating historical mystery, and the way that it was solved is actually the fascinating part. So I hope you guys find it as interesting as I do. Our story begins 70 years ago on March 12, 1948. At 9.14 that evening, a plane crashed into the side of Mount Sanford. A little backstory on Mount Sanford. It's actually a shield volcano with an altitude of 16,237 feet, making it one of the tallest mountains in the United States. It also has one of the steepest gradients in the United States, rising 8,000 feet over the course of just one mile. The plane was Northwest Airlines flight 4422. It had been carrying six crew members and 24 passengers, all of whom were merchant mariners. Almost all of the passengers were also World War II vets and they had been heading home from Shanghai to New York City after spending several months working on the SS Sunset. The next day investigators set out to find the crash and were finally able to locate it from air and realized the plane had been traveling 23 miles off of the planned route when it crashed it had just taken off from anchorage and had actually only made it about 200 miles before hitting the mountain suffice it to say the plane had been completely obliterated and it was obvious that no one could have survived The plane had actually nearly disintegrated, and the debris was scattered down the side of the mountain over 3,000 feet. But even if someone had managed to survive the crash, they would not have made it through the night in temperatures that had dropped down to minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. The plane had actually crashed into a glacial cirque, which is essentially a glacial valley, and was surrounded on all sides by extremely steep slopes that experienced continuous erosion. The geographical features of the crash site made it completely impossible for search and rescue or even aviation investigators to access. Within just a few weeks, the plane had been completely covered by the eroding snow and ice and the wreckage would not be seen by anyone for several decades. When the ensuing crash investigation was completed, the investigators eventually came to the conclusion that the pilot had possibly been distracted or momentarily blinded by the northern lights, which had been exceptionally bright that night, while taking an ill-advised shortcut, whether intentional or not but of course they would never truly know for certain. There was actually one living witness to the crash, a young girl several miles away who had been outside looking up at the northern lights when she noticed a bright flash of light in the distance, which was likely the moment of impact and subsequent explosion. For some reason, not long after the crash, rumors began to swirl that the plane had actually been carrying a large load of gold and other treasures from China. At that time, there were loads of mystery and adventure magazines and books, mostly aimed at young boys, and the rumors about lost treasure in a glacier caught the attention of many people. In the mid-90s, two Alaskan Air Force vets had a chance meeting that would bring new life to the old mystery. Mark Milliken and Kevin McGregor had also both spent years as airline pilots and had both separately been fascinated by the mythical treasure for a long time. They were both experienced mountain climbers and adventure enthusiasts, and once they met, they decided to make a real plan to find the plane themselves. Beginning in 1994, they took once-yearly expeditions in search of the wreckage, to no avail. However, on their fourth attempt, in 1997, they finally found a clue. They were able to locate small remnants of the plane, including a piece of metal that had an engine serial number on it, confirming that they were in the right spot. They continued to make yearly trips, finding bits and pieces of the wreckage here and there. But it wasn't until 1999 when they found the first and only human remains from the crash. The only thing left of the deceased occupants of the doomed flight was one disembodied arm. They also were able to find a very unique ring, which would end up turning out to belong to one of the other victims. While initially they had been drawn to the hunt for gold, the search now took on a more humanist approach. And they decided that they actually wanted to help bring some sort of closure to the families of those that had perished. And whom had received few answers over the years. They eventually gained permission from National Park Service and in 2000 were able to create a permanent memorial to the crash and the lives lost, which is located at the Alaska Aviation Heritage Museum in Anchorage. Of course, the human remains that had been recovered were of extreme interest to a variety of people and for another several years after they were discovered, several pathologists and forensic experts worked to identify the remains. Eventually, experts were able to rehydrate the fingers enough to get an identifiable set of fingerprints, which were then matched to one of the merchant mariners on board, Frank Van Sant. At the time, it was one of the oldest sets of human remains to be identified in this way. However, they also wanted to make a confirmed DNA match, and that's where Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick came in. She had actually worked for many years as a rocket scientist, but later in life had begun to study the science of forensic genealogy. Mitochondrial DNA had been extracted from the arm, but in order to match it as Van Sant's, she needed to now find a member of his family. Unfortunately, he had no direct descendants, and so Fitzpatrick began to research his family tree. Mitochondrial DNA is passed through maternal members of a family tree, so she had to research back through generations of grandmothers and great-grandmothers until she could find a separate branch from Frank's that would lead her to a living relative. After a lot of arduous research, in 2007, she located a distant relative named Maurice Conway, who at the time was 57 and living in a small Irish village called Askeaton. She was able to track down contact information for him, and one evening called him on the phone and tried to explain as simply as possible why she, a complete stranger from another country, was calling to ask him to provide her with a DNA sample. Conway had never heard of Van Zandt, who was his second cousin twice removed, and was understandably confused, but eventually agreed to send her a sample of his DNA. About a month later, on Thanksgiving Day 2007, he received a voicemail from her sounding incredibly enthusiastic, exclaiming that the DNA had been a match, and they were finally able to identify the remains of a man who had died several decades before. It was a huge professional and personal success for her. Just a few years prior to this, she had published a book about the relatively new discipline of forensic genealogy, and she had established a company called Identifinders International. The company specialized in forensic genealogy and many different types of historical mystery solving. The identification of Van Zant was just one of a few of the company's huge successes. She had also helped to identify Baby Doe, who was a baby drowning victim from the Titanic, and has actually exposed a couple of fraudulent Holocaust survivors that had written memoirs about their fictional experiences. But the company also helps ordinary people to track down biological relatives and solve any other little mystery that might involve a lot of historical research, and forensic genealogy. It might not have been the obvious late-life career for someone with a PhD in nuclear physics, but she has also had a lifelong interest in history and languages, five of which she speaks fluently, and she is very, very good at her job. So I don't know about you guys, but I just loved that story, and... I know Dr. Fitzpatrick has one book out about forensic genealogy, but I'm definitely going to see if there's something about all the other cases she's helped with, because I find it so interesting. The second mystery I'll be discussing tonight is a lot more recent and unfortunately unsolved. Can you imagine how you would feel if your child went missing? And the one entity that might be able to provide answers actually does everything to hide the truth. I'm actually not talking about a serial killer here. I'm talking about a company, Royal Caribbean Cruises. I must tell you, this case is incredibly infuriating. And I will try to express my righteous indignation without all four-letter words, but... You know, no promises. In the last several years, there have been a couple of famous disappearances off of cruise ships that have put the public eye on a phenomenon that has been happening for a long time. Famous cruise ship disappearances like Amy Bradley and Rebecca Corium, have brought to light the legal problems related to crimes and disappearances on cruise ships and the lack of compassion that is often shown by the cruise line involved. They often seem to want to protect their reputation more than the people that are paying a large amount of money to travel with them. When people work and travel on cruise ships, they often have the false belief that they will be safe, there will be security to protect them, and the cruise line would surely do the right thing if someone were to be the victim of a crime or go missing. Sadly, those two previously mentioned cases and the one I'm about to discuss Show that cruise lines don't always respond to tragedy as one would hope. There are very few cases where this is more obvious than this story, the disappearance of Marion Carver. If you've ever listened to a podcast episode about Amy Bradley, you may have heard them mention Kendall Carver. And this is actually the story of his daughter Marion's disappearance, which would end up leading him to create the International Cruise Victims Association. While this story does not take place in Alaska specifically, Marion Carver is listed as an active missing person in Alaska, presumptively because that was the destination of her cruise trip, and because no one really knows where she actually disappeared. In August 2004, Marion Carver was a 41-year-old mother of one. She was from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and one day, without telling any family members, she boarded a seven-day cruise from Seattle up to Alaska on the boat Mercury, which is part of Royal Caribbean Cruises. In a later deposition, the steward on the boat would testify that he had told a supervisor for several days in a row that, it didn't appear that Marion had slept in her bed or even been back to her room after the first night. The supervisor told the steward to just do their job. When the crews reached Vancouver, employees on the boat decided to pack up Marion's belongings, some of which would later be donated to charity. What they didn't do was contact the FBI or local police or even Marion's family members. She had disappeared and they were acting like nothing had happened. At the time that Marion had taken the cruise, her teenage daughter was staying with her ex-husband in another country, so it was actually weeks before the family even knew she had disappeared. When Marion's father, Kendall, was finally able to figure out that his daughter had gone on a cruise, the trip had been over for over three weeks. The cruise company Verified that Marion had bought a ticket and boarded the boat at the beginning, but they had no way to verify whether she had disembarked at the end of the trip. Along with her clothes and belongings in her room, they had also found her purse, which they locked up in a locker. And they'd of course cleaned out her room, effectively removing any possible evidence of a crime or even suicide. They eventually admitted that there had been no sign of Marion since the first night. But they said that wasn't considered odd because cruise travelers would often end up staying in another cabin for part of their trip. The company also lied to Kendall's face when they told him that security footage on the boat was wiped every 12 days and that they were now past the deadline to view any footage of Marion. It wasn't until much later that Kendall would learn that the footage was actually wiped every 30 days a time frame which he was still in when he requested the footage. It was obvious that the company was either trying to cover up a crime or protect their reputation, possibly both. It took them an insane five weeks to even file a report with the FBI, insisting that they didn't know that she had been missing until her family contacted them. Again, even though she had left behind all of her belongings and her purse, where could they possibly have thought that stuff came from. Kendall would also later find out that it was actually company policy to hold onto items left behind by a passenger for 90 days, which they of course did not do with her belongings. They had gotten rid of almost all of her possessions within just a couple of days of the trip ending. The cruise line would later announce that they believed that Marion had committed suicide. That's right, blame the victim, obviously. The company obviously wasn't expecting to come up against someone as formidable as Kendall Carver. He is the dad that every daughter deserves. He made sure that the story went public in a big way. He hired a private detective to go on board the ship to try to get information about his daughter. The company made it next to impossible for the PI to get any information by restricting his interview access and time on the boat. He got lawyers involved in order to get the deposition of the steward, who had originally noticed she was missing. It ended up taking four months after the disappearance to finally get the deposition. The steward explained that their supervisor had told him to just keep doing his job. The supervisor was fired, even though the cruise line would continue to insist that no wrongdoing had occurred and that they, of course, didn't know Marion had disappeared until the family contacted them weeks after the cruise ended. So why did they fire him? No explanation. The lawyer for the cruise line said the supervisor had failed to report Marion's disappearance to management, which is possibly true, but almost everything else they're saying is a lie. In fact, the lawyer blamed everything on the head of housekeeping including boxing up and donating her belongings, which they're not well paid. I can't imagine them doing something like that without asking somebody else. These are real people that probably care about real people, not awful rich people. By 2006, Kendall and his wife Carol had gotten Congressman Christopher Shays of Connecticut involved. Just the previous year, another Connecticut resident had disappeared off of a Royal Caribbean cruise. George Smith was 26 when he disappeared off of a honeymoon cruise in the Mediterranean. There was actually decent evidence in his case, including blood on the side of the boat and other signs that it could have been a homicide, but it was never solved. In 2006, the Carvers and the Congressman were interviewed on Anderson Cooper 360 where Congressman Shays discussed a bill he had created which would force cruise lines to report crimes and disappearances within a certain time frame. The bill would also require cruise lines to produce crime and disappearance statistics and would require them to have someone on board that could investigate these crimes. I actually found a couple of cruise-related bills that Chase was involved with, but I couldn't find any that had been specifically passed at that time. However, in 2010, Obama signed into law a bill called the Cruise Vessel Safety and Security Act. This would require cruise lines to have better security, including technology that would let crew members know if someone had gone overboard. Well, I couldn't find any mention from Royal Caribbean themselves about that bill until 2016. Prior to that, I found several articles that claim Royal Caribbean had still not installed a man overboard system as recently as 2015 when a passenger had fallen off a Royal Caribbean ship near Mexico and was actually rescued five hours later, but by a different cruise ship. As far as Marion's case goes, In 2006, human remains of a woman were found on a British Columbia Island called Mary Island. DNA from Carol Carver was compared with the bones, but it was eventually determined that they were not Marion. So many years later, Marion's parents still have no answers about her disappearance. But her case and other well-known cases have definitely caused a change in the way cruise lines are operated. Along with the bill that was passed in 2010, another bill was introduced in 2017, which would require safety officers to be on all cruise ships, but I could not find whether that had gone through or not. People are also paying more attention. The website cruisejunkie.com tracks incidents on cruise ships, and marketwatch.com has a graph charting overboard incidents on the various cruise lines. Surprisingly, Royal Caribbean is in second place with 42 reported incidents since 2000. Carnival Cruise Line is actually the number one with 60 reported incidents since 2000. But of course, those are the ones that are reported. Who the hell knows how many others there were? I actually tend to believe that this might happen more often than is reported. I actually stumbled across a trio of extremely recent cases where this happened. On November 22nd, a 27-year-old crew member on a Royal Caribbean cruise disappeared from the ship he worked on off the coast of Mexico. They actually don't even know where he disappeared because they didn't realize he was missing until... They pulled into port at Cozumel, and he didn't show up for work. They searched the boat and couldn't find him. They found security footage that showed him alive and well several hours previously, as they were still en route. But obviously they didn't have a man overboard system in place, because at some point, During the travels, he fell off the boat and no one noticed, so that's horrifying. On December 8th, a 69-year-old passenger went overboard on a boat in the cruise line MSC Preziosa while cruising in the Caribbean. Again, her disappearance wasn't noted until they docked at Martinique. They didn't even have security footage to see when she had gone overboard or last been spotted. And on December 14th, a 26-year-old passenger went overboard a Carnival Cruise Lines ship while traveling in the Florida Keys. It had happened in the early morning hours, but unlike the previous two, they actually figured it out pretty quickly and did a massive search of the boat and the water and got the Coast Guard involved pretty quickly. It had been originally stated that the man had gone overboard and footage could not confirm whether it was an accident or intentional, but they later followed up by saying they believed it to be intentional. So, obviously not their fault, right? The bill that was passed in 2010 requires all cruise ships to have a man overboard detection system on the boat to the extent that that's available. That was eight years ago, but in an article about the three recent disappearances, it says that most cruise lines do not believe the available overboard detection technology is reliable and most ships do not have it. I mean, it seems like they'd want technology that would sometimes help save a life rather than not having any life-saving technology. But that's just me. I mean, maybe they just don't want to spend the money. I'm going to guess that's a little closer to the truth. I'm not sure why these cruise lines are allowed to operate, even though they're obviously not adhering to the law. But I'm going to guess that there's some money-changing hands somewhere in there. After hearing about Marion's case, and reading quite a bit about many other very similar cases, along with the high prevalence of property crimes and rape that occur on cruise lines, as well as the murky legal waters that cruise ships operate in, and the murky legal waters that cruises operate in, I will never go on a cruise ship. And you probably shouldn't either. But if you do want to go on a cruise ship, I highly recommend doing your research and seeing what kind of safety and security is available on board. Thank you for listening to this special New Year's Eve edition, and I will see you guys in 2019.